Now a brief introduction of our chief guest. Shri Rajiv Mehrotra is a well-known television producer-director, documentary filmmaker, most known as the host of the acclaimed and one of the India's longest-running talk shows, In Conversation, aired on Doodarshan News Channel. Shri Rajiv Mehrotra is a managing trustee, executive producer and commissioning editor of the Public Broadcasting Trust that has produced more than 300 documentary films, winning some 40 awards from 250 international film festival screenings. His films have won nine national awards from the President of India. He has directed films such as a 10-part series for the television on Sri Ram Krishna, Angkor Wat, the places on Buddhist pilgrimage sites in India, on the Dalai Lama and so on. Sri Rajiv Mehrotra manages as the Honorary Secretary, Trustee, the Foundation for Universal Responsibility of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, Trustee of the Norbulinka Institute of Tibetan Culture and the Naudanya Trust. He has twice addressed plenary sessions at the World Economic Forum at Davos and was nominated a Global Leader for Tomorrow by them. He has been on the screening committees of the Planning Commission to recommend policies and strategies for information and broadcasting, information technology, and is nominated member of the core group of the Press Council of India. He has published several books including The Mind of the Guru, Understanding the Dalai Lama, The Essential Dalai Lama, Thakur, a biography of Sri Ramakrishna. He has been working on making a serial in English on the life of Swami Vivekananda. We are happy to welcome him with great joy and honor and would invite him to speak on youth media and spirituality. Swami Abhiramananda Ji, Swami Atmashramananda Ji, Swami Bodhmayananda, uh, novice Maharajas, to be great monks, by Professor Balaji, uh, my brothers and sisters. Uh, I do not speak here uh, even remotely as a teacher, and I'm deeply embarrassed uh, to be labeled a chief guest. I feel sort of most significantly sort of the least guest or the least important uh, guest here uh, this evening, except that I know that these are an essential part of the Vivekananda Study Circle family. Um, I really consider myself uh, a student of life uh, and like uh, everybody here, like all sentient beings, I too seek uh, happiness and to avoid suffering. And I think that that is the only real qualification uh, that I have to be here. I invoke the blessings of the Swamiji's I invoke the blessings of my teachers as I attempt to try and make uh, some sense to myself and I hope in the process to you uh, of the extremely simple um, spiritual truths. And yet when we seek to uh, achieve those goals and achieve those ends, uh, we ourselves are responsible for making them very complex and very difficult seemingly so. Um, ironically, uh, when I said we all want to, we want, all want happiness and we want to avoid suffering, uh, inevitably uh, happiness, as the scriptures will tell us, as Swamiji, as Thakur, and will tell us that uh, happiness is really our essential condition. And it is the veils of ignorance that cover our innate essential happiness the bliss, the joy that lies within us. 
And the only analogy that sort of reasonably comes to my mind is, uh, as, as, as science students, it's sort of like, you know, oxidized brass or oxidized silver, it loses its luster. And you have to polish away the oxidation and the glow and the gleam uh, comes back. And that really is the nature of happiness. Uh, Swami Atma Shardhananda has done a, a very eloquent, though brief but comprehensive um, introduction to the philosophy and ideas of uh, Swami Vivekananda. And it becomes uh, very difficult not to repeat uh, what he has said and try and say something fresh. And I, I, I certainly don't consider myself uh, capable of, uh, of offering anything new that is beyond what has already been said by the great masters, other than try and filter through the struggles of my own experience, my own striving, which is not dissimilar uh, to, to any of you uh, and yours. And I, I think the only thing that I envy you is that certainly when I was your age, I had no access uh, to uh, a Vivekananda study circle, which would offer such a wonderful context for engaging at a critical time in your lives, when your personalities, your character, and your very selves are being shaped and contoured, uh, that you have this wonderful privilege and opportunity. So I would really celebrate this effort and, and, and congratulate all those who through the 13 years uh, have built up this magnificent opportunity. And certainly uh, I'm, I'm deeply privileged to have, uh, to have begun to get to know uh, Swami Atma Shaddhanandji. And, and I have learned a great deal from him, not merely from what he has taught or what he has told me, but for who he is. And I think that is the ultimate teaching of any great master. I was just sharing with my young friend, where is he? When we were driving here uh, today, that um, um, uh, you know, Swami Vivekananda, uh, as any uh, great spiritual master, and he certainly is amongst the most uh, preeminent uh, of them through the pages of history, uh, expound eternal truths, but they locate them. They locate a universal message into the, the locality, the localness of that time in history, uh, which defines the needs and the imperatives of people at any given time. So it is up to us to extract those eternal truths from the vast volumes of literature, uh, the vast volumes of very empowering, energizing, uh, af you know, uh, affirmative uh, uh, writings of Swami Vivekananda. And what were some of those truths? And inevitably, the truths that touch us are individualized. They are truths that strike resonances in each one of us individually. And it is this celebration, I think, that the Ramakrishna mission embodies, that the Ramakrishna mission represents, that is its great contribution to India's civilizational history. And I think that when sort of, you know, another thousand years from now, India's civilizational history will be written, uh, there will be a very special space, a large special space for Swami Vivekananda. For me, and I have often acknowledged this, that my first personal um, affinity was really to Sri Ramakrishna. And I'm only beginning the journey of discovery uh, with uh, Swami Vivekananda. And uh, I think, and what that will be, will be this, the true reaffirmation 
at a time when India seemed to be losing it, the celebration of diversity, the recognition that each one of us is an individual, each one of us is different. So just like we have, we need different um, preferences for food because of our regional preferences, because of the nature of our personalities, because of the nature of our digestive systems, it would be horribly monotonous if we were all having, I don't know, you know, idli and, and sambar every day. So each one of us has different preferences, different needs. We need a, you know, we need a varied diet. And so each one of us springing, sprouting from the seeds of those eternal truths, each one of us needs an individualized, personal uh, practice, insights and understanding that meet, meet our specific um, uh, imperatives and what we look for in life. And I think it is, it is that element, that celebration, that the Ramakrishna Mission 100 years, more than 100 years, after the founding of this institution has retained its vitality. It has retained its vitality because each one of the Swamiji's is unique, even as they subscribe to this larger philosophy. You will find within the Ramakrishna movement, you will find the Raja Yogi, you will find the Karma Yogi, you will find the Bhakti Yogi, you will find representatives of each of the major yogas that uh, Swami Vivekananda articulated. And those yogas were not meant to be compartmentalized. So you were not just a karma yogi, you were not just a man of action, you were not just a man, man of intellectual knowledge. It was the blending of these and harmonizing and individualizing the balancing of aspects of karma, of action, of you know, aspects of bhakti that each one of us needs, given our personality and our profile, to adopt and evolve that balance, to personalize it, to individualize it. And it was both the celebration of the individual and the way that the individual related to the larger universe. Swami Atma Shardhanandi spoke about the extreme importance of uh, uh, Swami Vivekananda's philosophy as a social philosophy. Even though there is a great deal of emphasis in terms of character building, in terms of being strong, be arise, awake, what is the goal of that awakening? The goal of that awakening is embodied in the, in, in the mission statement in a sense of the Ramakrishna mission, and that is to love and to serve. It is in the field of external action that we manifest and we use our personal, our personal evolution, our personal perfection to reach out and go beyond ourselves. I've had the deep privilege of uh, working uh, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in an amazing dialogue that happens between Buddhism and science, which we are in the process of enlarging to, inc to include uh, Indian contemplatives and Indian science. And there is now, because this is an age of science and we constantly look for scientific empiricism to validate uh, our ideas, our practices, our approaches to life and living. And while I think the recognition uh, that, that the Indian civilizational heritage has celebrated is the juxtaposition of empirical knowledge with intuitive wisdom. One does not exclude the other. When something is proved or demonstrated to be proved through science, and since I come 
from a tradition, from in my personal case, that straddles the seemingly contradictory worlds of the devotion of the bhakti of Sri Ramakrishna and the agnosticism of the Buddha. Um, the, 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 the element of scientific empiricism, which was also so celebrated by Swami Vivekananda, achieves great significance and importance. It teaches us that we must, even as we use reason and logic, and what we do and our actions must stand up to reason and logic. They must be juxtaposed with elements of the heart. And the balance between these two is the great essence of our civilizational triumph. So the aspects of this scientific research has been looking at notions of happiness. So when we started these first uh, in, you know, dialogues uh, with you, you know, some of you who have been reading popular literature may be familiar with the word emotional intelligence. That is a new uh, phrase that has progressively been, uh, sort of has come into a common vocabulary in the New Age spirituality. What is emotional intelligence? It really is that how we can intelligently use our emotions. That the modern, the modern mind, modern civilization is taking us away from an acknowledgement of our emotions and emotions can be and need to be skillfully used. So when we began this dialogue with Western psychiatrists and people who are looking from a Western perspective on, uh, on, 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 on the pursuit of happiness, they found that people who were unhappy had an excessive obsession with themselves. I, me, mine. And that would be a very essential part of their conversation. And hence it is important that when we seek self-perfection, we don't just seek self or self-knowledge. Why do we seek it? We don't just seek it for the pursuit of our happiness, but so that we can become skillful, effective human beings in order to bring others happiness. So that's a very important teaching and a very important manifestation that you see in the Ramakrishna mission in action. Even as they talk about the pursuit of personal excellence, personal evolution, it is so that the monks of the Ramakrishna mission, the Sangha of the Ramakrishna mission can manifest external altruistic action. So they decided to look at this notion of altruism, which is a, a, an important teaching of the Buddha. And incidentally, uh, you know, Swami Vivekananda was deeply inspired uh, by the Buddha and in formulating the structure uh, of the Ramakrishna mission, the Sangha, the community, uh, uh, derived and imbibed a great deal from the Buddhist tradition uh, in terms of uh, in how to organize it and to give it this defined mission, this defined goal of service. So in Buddhism there is the notion of the Bodhisattva, which is that an individual decides that he wants to achieve enlightenment and hence break out from the, you know, the cycle of suffering, old age and death uh, in order to teach and serve humanity. And so they, we decided to test whether and what the impact of the practice of altruism and compassion has on an individual. So through a complex process of wiring up and, and um, using as you know, sort of available state of the art uh, brain imaging techniques, they were able to find that people who meditated on compassion moved from 
a meditation away from themselves, including the pursuit of their own happiness, of self-interest uh, or, or excellence, uh, were able to induce significant changes in the physiology of the brain where it is believed the idea of happiness resides. So that over a period of time, when this practice had been repeated often enough, because meditation, amongst the many definitions of approaches to meditation, is familiarizing the mind with virtue or with a positive quality. So when the mind was familiarized with the notion of altruism, of serving others, there was an increase in the state of happiness. And, you know, today Western science teaches us, and it's a chicken and the egg, that it is possible through the use of chemicals, and that is what physiological antidepressants are, that through the use of chemicals we can change our mental attitudes. We become different human beings. So if you're depressed, just like you take, um, you know, paracetamol or an aspirin for fever, you can take a pill that will make you happy. And that, in fact, the shortcut to happiness uh, has become a dominant theme, a dominant element, a dominant idea in contemporary civilization and in contemporary philosophy, in contemporary television, the advertising image. And this contrasts dramatically with our traditional civilizational heritage which has constantly emphasized the notion of sadhana, the notion of effort. So you cannot have, there are no instant solutions or instant techniques to happiness or to enlightenment. Today we live in a civilization when you can do a one-week course in breathing, which is patented in the United States, comes out of thousands of years of history, which can bring you, ostensibly, happiness. You can pay someone 10,000 rupees to lead you through a course in past life regression therapy, which means that over a weekend they will take you, supposedly, into your past life. Now these are things that are theoretically possible in the highest realms of our spiritual technique and practices, but they are being presented as instant solutions. So when we talk about happiness, we need to recognize the lessons of history, the lessons of our heritage, the lessons of our tradition. There is no instant solution. And in the cases where there are moments of epiphany, people talk about, you know, I had this one, I met the right teacher and something wonderful happened. It's possible. But that moment of wonderful happening is built on lifetimes of effort and practice, which may have at that time found expression uh, in, in, in a moment of great joy or ecstasy or happiness. So, the point I was making was that at the one hand, it is an established scientific fact now that you can use chemicals to alter the state of your mind, the state of your experience of perception. And there are at any one time more than 25 million people in the United States who are using prescription antidepressant drugs. But what's the problem with using antidepressant drugs? The problem is very simple, that you are externally creating the chemicals that give you a feeling of happiness, 
But like any chemical, there are side effects. Like with any chemical, its effect over a period of time will diminish and then leave you in a worse state than when you started out. And most importantly, that the sense or the state of mind that the chemical is creating for you is not circumscribed by the discipline, by the sadhana, the insights and the wisdom that the sadhana brings to that state of happiness and joy. The reason I share this is that, that, that in my youth, which was a very long time ago, certainly compared you know, to, 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 to your youth, is that I, I have been through uh, these delusions. And it is, I'm still, as I said, a, a student trying to learn. And you have this remarkable opportunity of the wisdom of the masters manifest in, 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 in you know, the 10th, 8th, 10th generation of monks from a profound heritage to learn from them. And ultimately, learning has very little to do with listening. It has to do with practice. Listening only provides the raw material. It provides, it plants the seeds. But we have to nurture the seeds. We have to fertilize the seeds. We cannot be passive recipients and count on the wisdom uh, of the Swamiji's being transmitted to us to grow those trees for us. It is the law, it is the philosophy, it is the element of karma. We have to do it. We have to make the effort. And so ultimately, the mantra, apart from those of you who may have received Diksha from the Ramakrishna mission, the mantra, apart from the, the mantra itself, is practice, practice, practice. You have to practice the mantra. You have received it. We can be very excited about it. In fact, another facet of our civilizational uh, reality today is that we have become spiritual. The, the, one of the sort of lessons of life that I can, uh, as, as a student of life, I would share, would like to share with you, and about the only thing that I can claim uh, to understand is how little I know, and the unceasing effort, sadhana, which will probably run through lifetimes. Look at the greatness of the great master Sri Ramakrishna. You know, for us, a divine manifestation. But for himself, to the last days of his life, ma, 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 the yearning for the union, for the complete, constant yearning with the eternal truth. He engaged in the sadhanas. He wasn't embarrassed to admit to the world, and so it was documented and put out into the world, that here was someone who was born divine, presumably of immaculate conception. He too kept engaging, kept engaging, kept engaging. And yet we want to sit in comfortable chairs in air-conditioned auditorium, listen to words of wisdom, and hope to be transformed. The great masters through the ages have had to make the effort. So if, if there's one personal experience that I would like to uh, you know, share with you and, 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 and pass on is the need for practice. I can tell you that certainly from where I'm coming from, where I came from, progress has been extremely slow. And it, it, it's been very, very difficult to see any progress 
in myself, certainly on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis. But if I look back from the time when I was 12 years old, when I had the great blessing and the privilege to, you know, to, to, to come under the sort of the, the, the shadow, uh, in a sense of uh, Swami Ranganathananda, uh, you know, a little bit of a little bit of progress, a little bit of development, some some change, uh, but you know, not a great deal. In order to be and 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 I and, and only recently I was in Belur and I and I and, and one of the we were talking to I was talking to one of the Swamiji's about you know my interest in different religious and traditions. I said, you know, if in five lifetimes I can become a monk in the Ramakrishna order, that is my goal. To be able to reach a stage of karmic achievement, excellence, fulfillment, that you can begin the kind of journey uh, that the monks of the Ramakrishna mission uh, are able to lead. And so we had, it is a great, great, great privilege, a blessing and an opportunity for us that we are born in a culture, that we are born in a society, that we have access to people who, like their great master Sri Ramakrishna, are themselves on a journey and so can share with us from their experiences and insights of the journey, can share that process with us. Because it is only a person who has been through or is going through a process who can understand our process, who can empathize uh, with our journey and to give us elements of that learning. You know, I was asked to speak about uh, uh, and so I will, <laughs> because that's uh, an, an, an area that I, I, I think seems to be of uh, interest uh, of, of, of the media. And in what ways uh, is media corrupting uh, our youth? And uh, in what ways can media be reformed or changed? Because it is true that by the very nature, and in particular of the electronic media, it impacts our consciousness in subtle ways that we cannot even begin to recognize and understand. Because when we speak, seek spiritual truths and insights, there is conscious effort. You have congregated here into this room. You know, you read a book. Uh, about Swami Vivekananda, you go and you prostrate in the temple, the very act of pro- prostration, uh, you know, it is not just going in, 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 in a, it has enormous significance and an enormous impact physiologically on us. Because in the Buddhist tradition, for example, one of the practices is prostrations. You do a thousand prostrations, just like you chant a thousand mantras. Why? Because the very act of prostration breeds humility. It breeds a process of surrender. It's a relationship between mind and body. So you perform these actions consciously. But the media is an all-pervading reality. Certainly for people who have electricity, people who have television sets, radios, going on the, on the roads, you know, banners, you'd have to go and live in some you know, remote mountain cave to be able to uh, isolate yourself from the onslaught of the media. And things have become particularly and much more complex with the advent of the electronic media. Because again, till such time as we had print media, we had paintings, it wasn't as pervasive, its impact wasn't as subliminal. 
So in a sense, just what you try and do with, with using a mantra or using a visualization of Swamiji, Thakur or whatever deity you worship, so that it begins to impact your consciousness over cumulatively over a period of time. The media is doing that to you while you are passive, which means that it is constantly overwhelming your senses and your sensibilities. And in subtle, cumulative and powerful ways, it is impacting the way we see the world. And most importantly, the way we see happiness. So happiness is now being redefined as a Mercedes car, of having a Mercedes car so that it can get you a beautiful wife or a handsome husband. So it just doesn't stop at the aspiration for a Mercedes car, but the Mercedes car will begin to have associations. I don't know how many of you have seen, you know, advertisements for Rolex watches. You know, Time, Newsweek, all the newspapers will carry advertisements for Rolex watches. What they did, what do they do? They don't advertise, they don't say anything about the Rolex watch. They're just a Rolex watch and they'll be Fedder, they'll be Tiger Woods, they'll be a great musician, they'll be someone of great eminence. And by constantly exposing us to that image, we somehow begin to think that if we have a Rolex watch, we can be like one of them. But that is a reality. Why do you think celebrities are paid huge sums of money to advertise products they do not use? <laughs> yes. You know, in the middle of, in the middle of this controversy that was going, about, going on about pesticides and, uh, and Pepsi and Coke, who do they get in? They get Amir Khan, who amongst the filmmakers is ostensibly supposed to have an image because, you know, he does serious films about uh, disadvantaged children and, and other issues. He comes in there and he's shown drinking uh, Coca-Cola or Pepsi and saying, look, I drink it, it's safe. So if Amir Khan thinks it's safe, we must all think it's safe. And a lot of people are subliminally influenced by it. We don't often consciously make the connections. I just share this is, is, is really to urge that we begin to consciously look at advertising and just look at the implicit message in it. Why is everybody in it always young, beautiful, healthy and handsome? Gives me a complex. You know, I don't get there. You know, because that is now, that is, the, that is the ideal and the aspiration. Why is it that if you have a, you know, a motorcycle, it'll get you a beautiful woman behind it? So there are thousands of people who will buy a much more expensive bike, you know, you buy a Honda because it'll get you, you know, the kind of woman you dream about, as opposed to a Bajaj, which will get you something else. <laughs> but, you know, that is the goal of advertising. You know, we, we have to accept it. And, you know, experiments have been done that shows that when I use the word subliminal, I do not use it lightly. Because scientists, you will know, and I, I don't know, you know, where it figures, it's probably too basic, these are things we learned at school, that, you know, an image flickers. And, you know, cinematic image used to start at a 16 flickers a second, then 24, 25, and, you know, television usually works at 25. I don't know what the new high definition will go. People have done research to have an auditorium full of people, and you put in a frame, say, every 10 frames, which says, drink Coke. You don't, you consciously don't notice the frame, but you're, 
consciousness is being impacted by drink coke. And then you go out and you serve Coca-Cola, Fanta and Pepsi and you feel fine people will drink coke. In order to devise these advertisements, people are wiring your eyelids to see how many times and the audience will flick its eyelid to see what their level of attention or concentration is on the advertisement. So this is not to delve too deeply, this is not to talk on advertising, but it's just to share with you the manner in which advertising impacts our consciousness. And so our spiritual practice is really up against this kind of impact on our consciousness. And this is the antidote. And unless we practice, 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 we cannot antidote what happened, what influences us 8, 10, 12 hours a day by a five minute, you know, once a week, um, you know, meeting, no matter how valuable uh, the Vivekananda said. It's what you do every day that's going to add up and create, create that transformation, how you carry that into your everyday life and living. But the impact of advertising just doesn't end there. And when we're looking at the media, let me just share with you how in today's society the media functions and how it makes the choices that it does. In the, correct, in the current economic structures that govern all economic activity, the basic premise of capitalism is that it is the consumer's need. I think Swamiji Gandhiji famously said, you know, there's enough for man's need, but not for his greed. So let us use the word, you know, makes us feel better, consumer greed. The basic element of capitalism is to what degree can we encourage, can we cultivate consumer greed for things that they do not need? and to convince them that they need it. So the logic of capitalism is in what ways can we keep increasing greed? So today if we wear you know, trousers which are straight cut, we must create a need. Five years or two years later that it should become flared, two years later that it should become thin, and then another two years later it should again become straight. So that we keep buying new clothes. We create the need that if you're fair, you're more attractive, you're more likely to get married. So let's have fairness creams. So that is it, it is, it, it, it is, it is a progressive process that if we don't keep creating ever-increasing greed or need, the capitalist system will collapse. And so today, India is a powerhouse for the global economy. Why? Because we have lots of wonderful young people like you, who we hope will keep buying things that you don't need. Yes, that is the premise of capitalism. So in other countries, people are now trying to encourage people to have more children because young people are bigger consumers than grown-ups. You know, when you're 80 years old. But ironically, one of the things that, uh, I mean, I, 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 this might be somewhat sort of irreverent and the Swamiji will forgive me. You know, one of the things that always, you know, that, that always horrifies me is that, uh, uh, you know, when I travel abroad, which, you know, thank God is very rarely these days, is that you will find 85, 90 year old, you know, ladies who are still, you know, using a lot of makeup because they still have that need or greed to be perceived as being beautiful. 
And you know that's makeup. So I, I never understood that how layers of makeup can ever, you know, cultivate to persuade you to you know, think somebody else is attractive. Men, I know this is a very gender sensitive thing to say, but now you're getting a whole range of cosmetics. I see advertisements in India for men's cosmetics. So if any of you feel that you're not handsome enough, there's hope. You know, you'll soon have creams that will give you, you know, I don't know what, disguise your, uh, disguise the shape of your nose, give you a, you know, brighter glow. All this is possible. So, the whole economics of the media, and particularly of the electronic media, because the electronic media is expensive. If you were just sort of looking at, you know, something that you wanted to say in print or write a poem, you could write it. You know, you could give it to a hundred people. But if you wanted to get your point of view across in the electronic media, electronically, even though the costs of production are coming down, it's still very expensive. So for the electronic media to run, it is dependent on advertising. So the objective of all television, for example, is not to deliver content to the consumer, the audience, but to deliver eyeballs to the advertiser. Because what is the motive of the advertiser, and hence of television, is to see how many people's eyes are glued to the television screen. And how quickly they can repeat the advertisement before you lose interest. So it is this balancing act. So, the, so you'll see, for example, if you watch a film, that the, when the film starts, you know, the story of a film is always very slow and you're making up your mind whether you should watch it or not. You get hardly any advertisements. As the film progresses to its climax and you're hooked, you'll see the frequency of advertisements will grow. You'll have faster advertisements. I mean, you'll have longer advertisements at that time. And, you know, even though you get impatient because you want to see the conclusion. And so they'll put in the ad there because they know you're going to be watching while you're waiting for the next part of the film. What happens in a cricket match? You know, they don't mind if the first ball of the over is lost. But if the guy's just hit a four, I mean, the four is hit and bang, advertisements will start. Because that's a climax. And you know, you, you, don't, you don't want to sort of look away. You want to see the player's reaction. Somebody's won a match. You want to look at it. So we have to understand that the very premise of the media is how to deliver eyeballs to advertisers and not to deliver content. So my young friend asked me, what is the solution? I don't know. Because the media is a product of our larger social environment. And he said to me, he said, you know, but don't they have a code? You know, why can't they follow ethical moral practices? But the nature of capitalism isn't ethical moral practice. It is maximizing profit. So can we have a Ram Rajya here? Yes. But then that will depend on people like you. Can there be enough people who will rise as you know, people with your backgrounds will, rise to positions of leadership, who in their spheres of influence will begin to assert the values and principles that we're talking about here today? even if not in the entirety of their lives, can they begin to do it as part of their lives? 
even if they have to spend, and, and again, Swami Atma Shadhanani so eloquently said that, you know, Swami Vivekananda was talking about the right way to live your lives, wanted you to be happy, to pursue your careers, to be, to be married, to have families, to have children. This wasn't a life of the renunciation of going and living away and hiding in the caves. This was a philosophy of engaging in life. So can we at least begin to devote a part of our lives as a beginning? We can't all become, you know, we don't have the discipline. I certainly don't, you know, have the discipline, the, you know, the physical courage, the austerity to become a monk. That remains an aspiration. I mean, I estimate maybe half a dozen lifetimes at least. But can we in our everyday lives, a part of our lives, a part of the time we spend, you know, which we would spend earning a living, can we begin to use it into some other more altruistic, creative contribution to the happiness and welfare of others? So I can only conclude by saying ultimately the future, as is the present, the unfolding present, uh, really up to each one of us as to what we make of it for ourselves and what we try and make of it for others. Ultimately that is the nature of the human enterprise. We can learn from the great masters, we can be inspired by the great masters, we can be moved by their wisdom, but ultimately and finally our personal destinies and the larger global destiny of our fractured, threatened planet is on our hands. There is a changing emphasis when we talk now of Indian nationalism, of the Indian nation, that has changed. Whether it is the swine flu that, you know, in, in an interdependent world, or it is the economy what happens in China creates unemployment in India. What happens in the United States affects what's happening in China. Whether it is the environment across the world, we are all increasingly interdependent. We cannot escape that. So we have to begin to look not at Indian nationhood, the Indian nation, but to begin to look at India's, I prefer the word civilizational heritage, because what is it? What is India? Is India merely the geographical boundaries that the British drew? Is India what the boundaries that, were, that the, the, you know, the Mughal Empire had? Was it the boundaries of Ashoka's uh, vision? No. India was a rich civilization. Its civilization, in, uh, that its, its civilizational heritage has spread across the world with different levels of intensity. So we are now one human family of which, you know, maybe the center of that large circumscribing civilization is in this little geographical entity. But that is not the confines of India's civilization. So let us now, when we think of making a contribution, you know, our scientists are, you know, in uh, making such powerful impact in, in, in the science and technology uh, in the United States. We're all over the world. So effort, effort, and effort, personal, and then motivated by it reaching out to others. I hope I've made some sense, but I had, uh, you know, I would feel 
you know, honored and, 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 and delighted, uh, you know, to respond uh, to any questions because, as again, I was telling my young friend, and he's been a great sort of, you know, crutch for me to lean on, is that, uh, you know, I'm a novice speaker. I have, you know, this is again one of uh, the great, uh, how do I put it, the great magnanimity, the great generosity of spirit uh, of the Swamiji's and Swami Atmashadanandaji and Swami Bodhmanandaji, who's been pointing a finger at me to do this. So I'm a novice at this. So, uh, you know, if, if there is something I can add that I can respond to, uh, if I haven't, I think I have already exceeded my time. So maybe I will just... Uh, uh, so if, if you feel that, uh, uh, if you have any questions that I can respond to, I will... I can only promise I'll do my best. I'm not sure I'll make sense. <laughs> but I can try. Anyone willing to ask any questions? Anyone dares to ask any questions? <laughs> So thank you very much. Oh, there is a question. <laughs> I'm a journalist and... Uh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but the question is on behalf so, of the so, students. So, so tomorrow no, I won't be... No, it's not a... I won't be crucified in, no, your, no, in your newspaper. I'm a spiritual uh, oh, writer. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you said uh, you are connected with the press broadcasting and... <clears throat> something else. It's they called mentioned. the Public Service Broadcasting Trust. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, it has always been my concern about uh, is there any uh, hope to make the media in India turn inward, turn within? Uh, is there any possibility or hope to do this? Well, of course there is hope, otherwise we'd be all dead. <laughs> but yes, I mean, that, that's a very, uh, and, and, and this may not be so much about spirituality, but you have raised, uh, you know, a, a very seminal question, which in many, uh, in many liberal democracies, uh, this is being argued and discussed. And as you will, as you will appreciate, uh, a free media is an integral part of any democracy because democracy uh, is not just going once a year and, 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 and casting a vote. It is the flow of information between ruled, uh, ruler and ruled. It is how different nuances of public opinion, of public need get articulated. It is in the manner in which we are able to influence decision-making, influence government, and make sure that the government reflects our needs and aspirations. Also in the context of equity, uh, which means that the needs, the entertainment and education needs of any nation, of any community, particularly in countries like India, where there is so much inequality. If media is driven by advertising, then it is obviously not interested in the needs and aspirations of those whose advertisers are not interested in. So if you're not a consumer of Coke, Pepsi, Fenris Cream, Mercedes, etc., etc., then television is really not interested in you because you, you, know, you, you, don't, you don't create the advertising that drives the media. So in this context, there have been, there is the notion of public service broadcasting, which really means that broadcasting which responds to the needs in particular of the disadvantaged and disenfranchised and people or agendas that advertisers are not interested to. The problem with public broadcasting has been that it is inevitably funded by the state as it is in India. So you have All India Radio and Doodarshan, which are funded by the government. What has happened is that they then, in turn, 
becomes instruments of the government and they become what a centralized bureaucracy believes that an audience needs to see and hear rather than what they want to hear. Now that is a mistake I probably have been guilty of myself. But I stand here and I have been talking about what I feel you need to hear or you might find interesting. I have no idea if I have been actually meeting your needs or what you want to hear. For that you have to be an experienced Swamiji who is, you know, who intuitively through his interactions with you has a sense of what works for you, what helps you. I have no idea if I've made that contribution because mine has been to use the, the vocabulary of the market as a supply push. So I just have put out to you what I feel you might find interesting as opposed to a question-answer session which is a demand pull which means I respond to the questions that you ask which means your concerns and your interests. Now we have failed to create the mechanisms in public broadcasting to respond to the demand from people. Now that is not easily done because when the government is using public money, it's always tempting, whether it's incredible, incredible India campaign or the, you know, the BJP-led campaign about uh, India shining, none of which worked because nobody believes, you know, what is not truthful. So basically in a few countries, I think largely the United States, French, France and Germany and to some degree in the United States, they have managed to create truly independent bodies which are responsible to parliament as opposed to the government in power uh, to create the kind of media that will respond to these needs. For example, you will find in the BBC that they have, and if you go to the BBC West website incidentally, you will find the most sophisticated articulation in Western vocabulary in terms of religion. We in India have shied away from truly secular religious broadcasting. So the religious channels that we do have, for example, you know, Asta and, and some of the others, are paid channels. They don't run on any, any kind of business or audience model. So I decided in my vanity, I don't have the money, but suppose I was able to find the money and say, look, I want to be a Swamiji. I could just pay Asta a lot of money and they would give me two hours of time to go there and speak my bit and, you know, create a constituency. And the, one of the reasons why that hasn't happened is that there is an insufficient demand pull because the people who need it are not able to organize themselves to put pressure on our parliamentarians, to put pressure on our decision-making process to say that, look, public broadcasting counts. But how can we do that in a country like India when we have failed to do it for healthcare, we failed to do it for drinking water and elections? Elections are, you know, you vote for the guy with the right caste. We're not yet, we're not even voting for the, for the more fundamental agendas of uh, drinking water, health, sanitation, roads, or what have you. In some areas, maybe. So where is, you know, the agenda of public broadcasting going to come? Long way away. So thank you very much. This has been a great honor and a great privilege, and I hope there hasn't been too much of a supply push. Thank you.